For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, it's Will here. Before we get stuck into this week's show, I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who has been leaving us their ratings and reviews. It's a wonderful way to help us grow Australiana, and it's super quick and easy. If you are yet to do so, please leave us one now so we can remain in the good graces of the mystical, algorithmic podcast gods that control our destiny. Now, cue the jingle. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia, a series of conversations on Australian politics and life. I'm Will Kingston. Economics was first called the dismal science by Scottish historian Thomas Carlyle. He was said to have been inspired by Thomas Robert Malthus's gloomy prediction that population would always grow faster than food, dooming mankind to unending poverty. I've always taken a strange comfort in the brutal realism of economics, but it's a philosophy that is increasingly at odds with the post-truth, all-about-the-feels era in which we live. To assess the state of the dismal science in 2023, I'm joined by economist and Washington correspondent for The Australian, Adam Crichton. Adam, welcome to Australiana. Thanks for having me, Will. Let's, uh, Let's start with a macro view of economics and the state of the dismal science in 2023. How would you assess where it is at as a discipline today? Uh, look, it's a good question. Um, well, it's much larger than it was. I mean, there are a lot of economists out there employed in uh, both private sector and academia and government. I mean, I think it was Keynes once said that uh, economics is one of its main uses is as a form of employment for economists, which has certainly proved true. So it's a big discipline. Look, I would have said it used to be ideologically conservative, but I think in, in recent decades, it's, you know, that's no longer the case. And I think we, we saw that, especially during the COVID crisis. You saw a lot of economists say things in public that I thought were, you know, really contrary to the discipline itself and, and you know, somewhat uh, crazy. It's a very technical discipline now. I mean, you have to be very good at mathematics to advance in economics by and large. I mean, I, 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 start, I did an MPhil in economics at Oxford years ago and I started the DPhil PhD, going and spent three or four months doing it, and then kind of gave up. I realised that you know the hardcore mathematics really wasn't for me, and uh, so I just left it at the masters. So it is very, very technical. And actually, just just on that question, I mean, that kind of I thought it you know it makes it a bit useless, a bit practically useless. I mean, uh, we're very good economists, we're very good at mathematics, and you know they're arcane models, but these aren't really very helpful to the world practically. You know, they often just state the bleeding obvious with very advanced mathematics, so they don't really offer any new insights. I want to actually tease out a little snippet of what you just said, which was around the encroachment of particular ideologies on economics. In the last several years, we've seen the encroachment of 
identity politics and woke ideology on several fields of science. The most egregious example was probably the medical profession during COVID-19, where there were several medical practitioners who took on decidedly political positions. You see economics as being vulnerable to the same phenomenon? Yeah, look, I I think so. I mean, I think not as vulnerable. I mean, I think there have been surveys of different government departments, universities, certainly in the US, I'm sure in Australia, and they'll, you know, look at the, the, the political leanings of, of the disciplines. And I think you'll find your economics is relatively more conservative than the others, but it would still be left of centre on balance without question, <laughs> you know, probably extremely so, but it would be less extremely so than the humanities and the social sciences and the other social sciences. And I think that's because the discipline, as I said earlier, I mean, it is, you know, it's really hard to be good at economics at a high level. You have to be very good at mathematics. And of course, if you're good at mathematics, that suggests that you have some grasp of logic uh, and some sort of sense of rationality. So um, so I think you do see the hard sciences, the physics and the chem- and chemistry and also economics, they tend to be less less politically left-leaning than some of the other disciplines. Would that, would that always have been the case, though? Like, I would have thought if you went to the no. Oxford Economics Faculty in the 1950s, that certainly would have been the case. What, what's changed? Yeah, look, that's a very good point, actually. In fact, you would have found probably the science, the sciences used to be more left-wing, I would say, at universities than the humanities, which used to be very conservative. So, look, that, that probably suggests that, I mean, I'm just speculating here, that probably suggests that the humanities-type disciplines are more captive to, to whatever the prevailing political mood of the population or the elites is generally. So they're going to just shift more with the zeitgeist, if you like, whereas the science-based or the mathematics-based disciplines, because I suppose you could say they do have that underpinning of, of you know, what is truth and kind of a rational basis that they don't change as much over time. That, that would be my explanation mm. of that phenomenon. But I think it's, yeah, it's a good point. The interesting thing is this isn't just a theoretical, this doesn't have theoretical implications. There are now what I would suggest are quite radical economic theories that get a hearing at very high levels of power. You've heard in particularly in American politics uh, among some corners of the Democratic Party, modern monetary theory becoming, if not mainstream, more mainstream. It gets me thinking about a fundamental question here, which is, do the rules of economics ever change? Do these sorts of challenges to economic orthodoxy have validity? Yeah, look, that's a very good question. Um, just on the modern monetary theory. Perhaps explain explain it for, for some people who may not may not understand the concept. Well, basically, in essence, says the you know, central bank should create as much money as the government wants and spend it, you know, until inflation starts rising, and then they should rein it in. So it's basically it, it, it says it, I mean, some of the points it makes are are kind of descriptively accurate that you know money is a creation of government. That's true, it is. I mean, the money we use is a creation of government. It's fiat currency. The banks create it out of thin air. The government creates it out of thin air. I think a lot of people don't understand that. They think it's some something external from government. When no, it's really a legal and government construct. And that's why we have you know we have had bouts of huge inflation. And you know what I was going to say about MMT, which I mean everyone kind of howled it down as crazy, but to some extent, we've been practicing MMT now for quite a few years in the sense that central banks have just created massive amounts of money to prop up government spending programs, right? The Reserve Bank of Australia, Bank of England, the Fed here, they've created trillions of dollars and, and pounds, et cetera, collectively. And that's what governments have used to subsidize their economies during their COVID shutdowns. So that is kind of an MMT type policy, if you like. And now you've got inflation. So that's, so, you know, so MMT would now say, well, now we have to rein in the money creation to get inflation back down again. But that's very hard to do in practice. I think I think the problems with MNT that it's 
descriptions of how the world works are kind of correct, but its policy ideas are very naive because they they suggest that politicians can easily you know can easily increase taxes, say, to rein in inflation when they when they obviously can't do that. Extremely hard to increase taxes as a, a politician. So I think the MMT advocates kind of assume, and indeed would prefer, I imagine, a society run by technocrats and uh, not a democracy, because those technocrats could try to fine-tune the economy with money printing and tax rates to get the just right amount of inflation. But the reality is we don't live in a society like that. So I think we have to be very careful with rampant money creation, which is what has just happened. I mean, I think we've so debauched the value of currency now that public finances have become a joke which we've just sprayed so much money up against the wall, money created out of thin air, that how can the ordinary person have any respect for the fiscal process whatsoever? You know, why spend hundreds of billions of dollars? You know, let's take Australia. We gave hundreds of billions of dollars to businesses that did not need it during COVID that was paid for out of money made up out of thin air. And a lot of those people went and bought artworks and, you know, expanded their home and, you know, had a, a wonderful old time. I mean, that's extremely so so bad for for public respect in the fiscal process and I, I i don't know how you recover from that right because you know in a few years time the government's going to say oh we can't afford this medicine for this poor person or we can't you can't afford this and yet they've just done the most outrageous waste waste of money i mean obscene so i don't know how you come out of that morally anyway sorry i've gone off with no. <laughs> i want to pursue this further because i was actually looking at our gross <laughs> debt chart of our gross debt for this interview, and obviously COVID was was disastrous in that regard, but our gross debt was rising dramatically well before COVID. It's been going up, give or take, for the last 15 years. Yeah. This is a trend that is playing out again across most of the Western world. It feels like most Western governments have just given up on fiscal discipline. My, my question is, is why? Is it is it harder to be more fiscally responsible today than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago? Yeah, look, I think it is. Just just on the Australia point first, yeah, I mean, it's true, actually. I think we've had the biggest uh, percentage point increase in, in public debt in the world, actually, uh, during COVID. I mean, we did start from a relatively good position. Uh, our gross debt to GDP, which is the typical measure, uh, was, I think, something like 40% or something before COVID. Now it's like 60, right, which is a which is a very big increase in a, in a very short number of years. And you're right. I mean, in the 19... Well... Certainly the 1960s and 1970s, you're right, um, the governments in Australia and the US and the UK, they paid much more fealty to the idea of balanced budgets and low debt. They came out of the Second World War with massive debts. And, and by and large, they paid them off by the fact that their economies grew very rapidly. So they weren't, in essence, paying off the nominal debt at a rapid pace. There was huge GDP growth in the, in the 50s and 60s, and so therefore the debt shrunk as a share of the economy. But pretty much since the 70s and 80s, it's been creeping up again. And... You know, I don't think you can blame the left for this. I mean, if you look at the United States, it was Ronald Reagan in the 80s who probably more than any other politician in, in well, certainly American history, just, you know, tripled the debt or just went up massively in the space of eight years, right? I mean, he cut taxes. He had this idea that if you cut taxes, that would more than pay for themselves. That's not true. <laughs> I mean, it may be good to cut taxes, but it doesn't necessarily mean they pay for themselves through greater growth. So what happened is there was this huge hole punched in US revenue and debt went up enormously during his term. And there was no great kind of disaster. So I think a lot of people looked at that and thought, oh, well, you know, maybe it's not a great disaster if, if public debt increases. And so I think that contributed a lot to a, to, to global realisation in, in rich countries, at least, that it wasn't necessarily a catastrophe, at least now in the short term, if you, if you massively grew debt. And pretty much since then, 
all countries have done that. I, I mean, I think the US now is its debt's about 100% to GDP. I think Britain's 100%. You know, France and Germany are all around 100% thereabouts. I mean, Japan, of course, you know, is like 130 or something, something crazy like that, maybe 140. And there's been no kind of catastrophe there either. I mean, there are problems with Japan, but but seemingly, you know, it's not you know, it's not defaulting. It's not unable to pay its its debts. Um, so, I mean, you'd, you'd probably say Australia's been amongst the most conservative countries in a public debt sense, and New Zealand until recently, and that was probably with good reason because they're relatively small countries with their independent currencies. They're that you know. They're far away. They have to be careful what foreigners think of their creditworthiness. Are, are those percentages sustainable, let's say, over the next 50 years? If Australia, if those countries have 100 to 150% GDP, uh, debt to GDP ratios in 50 years' time, is that sustainable in the long run? Well, look, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I haven't done the maths. I'm sure someone has on, you know, what, what the cost of servicing our debt is at, at, you know, 5% interest instead of, you know, instead of two, really, because that's a huge, it's a huge change. My understanding is it is the fastest growing line item on the Australian uh, budget is just interest. Because, I mean, the, you know, the bonds are all of different lengths and they, you know, they roll over at different points. And it's, you know, when they roll over, the government has to pay the higher interest rate. But, you know, some of the debt will be 10 or 10 years or more. So, so it will take a while for you know for some of the debt to roll over. But nevertheless, as you say, interest is going up. Is it sustainable? Well, I mean, you see, this is I mean, everyone's been saying for you know twenty years that it that the debt's unsustainable, and yet it's still sustainable. So I mean, um, look, at some point it won't be. I mean, where that is, I don't know. It's interesting thought experiment. You know, if there was another COVID, you know, COVID twenty five or something. Could governments spend that same amount of money again or, or you borrow or create? It's an interesting thought experiment because I don't think they would. I think they'd come up with excuses why we don't, we won't do that this time. Even, like, even if the disease was exactly the same, right? I mean, so everything else was the same. I don't think you'd see that much spending this time because I think there'd be a realisation that it's not, it's not sustainable and we can't have another 20 percentage points on our, on our debt, especially at these interest rates. So I think it's... So I think there is a realization that we are reaching that point. You know, we don't know exactly where the point is, but we're roughly around it. That you know, 100% of GDP, 120% of GDP, or something like that, depending on the size of your economy, is about the maximum. Which is which is kind of you know worrying. I mean, if there was a war, I mean, yeah, heaven forbid. God, I hope there's not like a major war, but the debt would go up a lot more than that. The other interesting point to make about the debt levels is we have these debt levels at the same time as we have very high rates of taxation. Mm. Uh, so we have very high tax and very high debt. That should be somewhat uh, concerning because, you know, what my debt point is, you know, if the government increases taxes even more in an emergency, it's going to really hit the economy hard in terms of in terms of people's incentives to work and save. And that's, you know, that's a real problem. So, yeah, so so I think I think we're in a kind of weak position. You know, the West is in a weak position, I think, and, and a lot of it's – a lot of the good, the good economic signs are only because of this, all the borrowing and – public spending, which, which, as we've just discussed, is not sustainable in the very long run, at least. Let, let me add a, another depressing consideration into that analysis of where the West sits right now. We are facing, from what I can see, a demographics crisis over the next 50 years. People <laughs> across the Western world are living longer, and yet we're having less kids, so we're going to have more people to support and less working age people to be able to pay for them. 
How does that play out? Where where are we heading? What are the consequences of, of that demographic shift in conjunction with some of the debt issues that we just mentioned? Well, look, I mean, it's you know, I mean, it's very worrying. Um, and you're right; pretty much all countries, you know, f- so sorry, all all rich countries are facing similar problems. I mean, Japan is kind of the future, if you like. You're seeing, you know, it's twenty, thirty years ahead of Australia and America on these on this demographic time bomb, if you like. Uh, for whatever reason, this rich country, which is Japan, um, people don't don't have children, um, and the same thing is happening in Europe and and also America and Australia. Uh, so the population shrinks as it is in in Japan. I think it's also started shrinking in China too, hasn't it? Although they obviously had one child policy, which complicates things. But um, it has, but, yeah. But I think it started shrinking there as well. Well, I mean, I mean, if if it's if if the projections come true, and you know, you never never be certain of these things because a behavior can change uh suddenly so that's always possible but yes there is going to be our economies are going to shrink and paying off the debt or or maintaining the debt is going to become more expensive in that in that situation right if you've got this these these huge fiscal debts and the, and the underlying economy is shrinking that's that's a big problem and in terms of innovation it's it's probably a huge negative i mean fewer young people means generally less innovation you know more people in nursing homes uh, you know that's not great for you know that's not great for innovation. So I think you'll see a stagnation of not just economic growth based on population, but economic growth based on on kind of innovation and and, and uh, development in that sense. I mean, the interesting question is you know, with this huge share of the population in nursing homes, basically, you know whether that creates a big increase in wage rates or not, because we haven't developed robots yet to look after old people. I mean, maybe that's on the horizon, but they're not as good as humans, right? I mean, they, they can't display the same level of care and concern as a human. So, so there'll be massive demand for physical labor in the, in the nursing home and health industries. And it'll be interesting to see what that does to wage rates of younger people of whom there'll be fewer and fewer, as we just, as we just discussed. So that could see an increase or that could see upward pressure. On wages and inflation, which is kind of that—that's kind of a novel take of mine. I don't know whether that's conventional, but the conventional view. But yeah, the shift into the nursing home healthcare sector will be enormous, um, and that's going to have impacts on on the careers people choose and and the wages they earn in different industries. So there there are undoubtedly some very serious challenges that both Australia and and the West more generally face from an economic perspective. I want to turn to how. Our government specifically is, is thinking about those challenges, and I'll start with 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 Jim Chalmers. I guess you'd say his his, his ideology, his philosophy, which he has called values based capitalism. So he he has said that Labor wants to change the dynamics of politics towards a system where Australians and businesses are clear and active participants in shaping a better society. What are your reflections on the term values based capitalism and the principles that that underpin it, such as they are? Well, I mean, look, look, I'm very cynical about politicians, and that's that's not a that's not to, to insult them individually. You know, they have a job to do, and, and they they operate in a set of incentives that means they have to waffle and, and say nonsense all the time, and say, in order to keep their their base happy, their party members happy. And you know, you talk about a Jim, who I think is a great guy, and you know, I know him and all that, but I mean, you know, just these phrases are meaningless, and. What decision have they made about anything since they won government that's of any substance? I mean, I, I don't think they've really done anything in a structural economic sense, have they? I don't correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't been there. But, you know, we're having this voice vote, which 
you know, you could say, you know, a hardened economist might say is just nonsense waffle and is actually of no consequence whatsoever. It's just a cultural thing for people to argue about. It's kind of entertainment, if you like. But on the economic front, have they changed tax rates? Have they done anything major on the on the budget? I don't think so. They haven't. Have they made a difficult decision? I can't think of one from here anyway. And values-based capitalism, well, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I, just, I mean, I know he wrote a 7,000-word essay on his, on his economic views, which, which I wrote about. Well, I'm just trying to think what the central points were. I think it was for you know, a greater role for government. Yeah, I think he talked about values-based capitalism in that essay. But, I mean, these aren't new ideas. These are old ideas and old rhetoric. I mean, we're just going around in circles, really. So, look, until I see a concrete policy from the Labor government on economics, then we can evaluate it. But I just, I don't think there is one. Is there a plan to nationalise the Commonwealth Bank or is there a plan to do is there a plan to do something? I mean, then we can at least talk about it. No, you're right. I don't think there is. But if I was being fair, I don't really think that there was much in the way of serious reform over the last 15 years, uh, no, potentially no, over the last 20 no, years since, like- since Howard. My, my question is, and this, uh, this is something I reflect on, a lot, and it goes to arguably the central challenge of politics of the 21st century, is that it just seems like governments don't have either any interest or any skill or any appetite to tackle serious reform. Why Why? Why is that the case yeah. since, since, since the, the, the 90s and the early 2000s? Well, I think, you know, the, the force for reform or the force for change you know, since the Second World War and actually before was always the left of politics, like social democrats, you know, traditional social democrats, whether it was pension systems or you know help for, for the unemployed and and you know, healthcare and so forth, but I think there's been a, a big change in major left wing parties in the world, especially in the US, which is where I've lived for a couple of years now. You know, the Democrat Party is really no longer a force for change; it's an establishment party that wants to keep things the way they are. It increasingly represents the wealthy, and that's just a statistical fact. I mean, some of its rhetoric may still be about the poor, but if you actually look at its actions, it doesn't really care. It doesn't really want any big changes, right? Point is, to answer your question, you've got left-wing parties now that are no longer change parties. They're no longer, they're not really tax-the-rich parties. They like to talk about that a little bit, but they're not really because they don't do it. So they really defend the interests of the wealthy. And and if you look at donations to political parties in the US, you see that Wall Street banks and the big tech companies, you know, overwhelmingly they donate more now to Democrats than the Republicans, Right. So no wonder the Democrat Party supports the very wealthy more. And the Republican Party, on the other hand, is also, you know, is transforming more, I think, into a kind of a working class party. Uh, structurally, it's changing, you know, which is, you know, which is difficult. I mean, it's still got the, you know, the 1980 kind of Bush Republicans there, but they are shrinking in the party. Um, so, but, but the problem with the Republicans is that, you know, they're transitioning to a, to a workers party. They're still not there. And so they too don't really want to change the fundamental thing, you know, fundamental tax rates or, or structural aspects of society. There's always a lot of pushback. And, you know, the other point generally I might say is because our societies are so unequal now, I mean, wealth inequality in the US in particular is just extraordinary. I don't have the figures at hand, but, you know, the top 1% own something like a quarter of the country or some shocking figure like that, which is about triple what it was after the Second World War. So, therefore, we're living in a society where the very wealthy are very powerful and they don't want anything to change right? Very, very, very reluctant for anything to change. Um, and this is not just the US, you could make the same argument about Britain and Europe and Australia as well. So, you know, wealthy families, they have a lot more wealth than they used to in the 60s and 70s, a lot more. So therefore, just logically, that group of people is a lot more powerful in society, right? They control more things. So that's why you don't see change too. This is my theory. People don't want to see, you know, those people don't want to see change, obviously. And they don't like politicians who rock the boat in any way. 
So you're seeing in the US now with uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who I actually really like. I mean, you know, I don't agree with him on everything, but I think he's, you know, I think he's excellent in many ways, but he's loathed by the establishment here because he dares to question the pharmaceutical industry, which is a no-no. I mean, it's a very, very powerful industry. And he also questions the, you know, the establishment, the security state, which is a vast, vast industry in and to itself. And so you just watch the way the media reacts on the left and the right to him. Well, you know, mm. left and right in inverted commas, you know, because I don't even know what those things mean anymore. But, you know, vicious personal attacks, you know, exaggerations, smears. I mean, it's quite something to behold, actually. When he just makes pretty sensible points, in my view, but 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 they're points that the uh, the establishment doesn't want the public to hear. It's really interesting, isn't it? I, I And because of that portrayal in the media, because in the media, the 90% of the, the coverage would be around his take on vaccines and then it would be labels yeah, yeah. like, conspiracy theorist or anti-vaxxer. So I'd actually never really listened to him and I just assumed he was a bit of a kook. And I yeah. finally took the time to listen to an extended two-hour podcast where he was he yeah. was interviewed. And he's yeah, a very to all of them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. and super intelligent, rational, sure. interesting much. thinker. And you're right, it, it is fascinating how there are particular interests that want to betray him in a certain way. And again, I'm probably uh, more politically engaged than the average punter, and yet because of the way that that, that portrayal has taken place, even I just uh, I, I wrote him off. It's, it's a real, real concern. What are your reflections on 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 modern media today? Uh, well, look, this is a topic that I've got to be very careful. <laughs> without, <laughs> so, without, without losing your job, go on. So this is the, the, you know I don't like these sort of questions, but um, look, generally, you know, the media sector more than any other. Well, the traditional media sector, newspapers in particular, have undergone more change than than any other sector of the economy in the last twenty years. That's absolutely no doubt about that. And it's been stressful and difficult. Uh, you know, the resources we have have, have shrunk, so we have to do journalism differently. It's still a very enjoyable and rewarding job, which is probably why it's why I'm still there doing it. You know, because the number of journalists has shrunk the jobs are even more special i suppose than they once were right um to get a paid journalist gig is rare and someone's very lucky to have that because you know the the part of the the good side of the change is that because of the internet anyone in the world can read what i write whereas you know even you know 30 years ago that wasn't the case you were you know your market was your physical local market as a journalist and that was it so for journalists you know the scope of you know the uh, potential readership and viewership of your work is much much greater downsides are of course that the revenue streams have have shriveled up a lot because advertising moved to you know google and facebook and you know lost the classifieds i mean all these things are well known so media companies now they have to get more of their money from their readers and their viewers and i think this is the big this is the big change whereas you know 30 40 years ago advertising funded newspapers and the sales were a relatively small component of income but now that's that's changed completely and obviously that has an impact on the stories that run and the choices that editors make what this process has led to is is a polarization of of media companies where you have uh different papers appealing to different groups of the population and appealing to not wanting to offend their audiences at least not too much kind of have to be delicate (laughs) but 50 years ago an editor didn't care what his readers thought about particular Mm. subjects because he could just say, well, we're going to publish this and I don't care because we've got all this advertising and you can just read it. <laughs> you know? So, But now you've got, you've got papers on the left, papers on the right, and they will tend to reinforce sometimes or at least talk about the topics that their readers want to talk about. It's almost like you've got two different 
I mean, just just yesterday, I mean, just just moving to cable TV in the US, which is a classic case of that, right? Yesterday, I put on MSNBC, which I don't normally watch. Um, it's it's kind of you know the left wing channel, and it was just extraordinary. Mm. Literally for two hours in prime time, the only topic, the only news item was Donald Trump's documents. There is not a single other story. Like all these experts on about how terrible it was, how terrible Trump was, and just endlessly, it was like there was no other story. No doubt, if you turned to to Fox, it would have been uh, would have been exclusively Hunter Biden. Yeah, that's right. And every time I put on Fox, which is actually on right now, it's just on Hunter Biden, largely. And look, that's a story too. I mean, they're both stories. They're both really interesting stories. Uh, but the fact that you know, the networks cover them so you know so differently is reflects the fact that they have polarized around different markets. And it's just economics. It's not like MSNBC is intrinsically left wing. It's trying to make money. I mean, you can make arguments about particular the directors. And the same with Fox. I mean, people constantly attack Fox. I mean, if it's not Fox, it's just some other company's going to do it. I mean, it's just so stupid. I mean, it's you know, it's like attacking, you know, a, a talkback host in Australia. I mean, if it's not, you know, if it's not Alan Jones or whoever it is, it's just going to be someone else. I mean, it's a market. It's a lucrative market and it's going to be filled in a, in, mm. a, in a free society. So I don't understand the criticisms really. I mean, that's what people want to listen to. Some people want to listen to this and so they will. So, yeah, um, so media has changed a lot, I guess, is the bottom line. I still enjoy it a lot. It's hard, but uh, because you know you have to produce a lot more, I think, than uh, the one used to. I mean, you know, what have I done this week? I've done three. I think I've done four TV appearances, this podcast, and written eight articles. Would that have been the output that would have been expected of you at the start of your career? Um, well, it certainly wouldn't be the output expected of, of foreign correspondents twenty years ago. <laughs> um, but um, in terms of me personally, uh, yeah, look, I mean, I think yeah, the journalists work pretty hard at the Australian. I mean, I started in twenty twelve as junior economics writer, uh, so, so economics correspondent. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, I, I uh, yeah worked hard, but you know, probably now I do write more. Yeah, you know, I probably do write more. You know, it's hard to think back eleven years ago, but you know, was I writing eight to ten articles a week then? Probably not. Oh. Pause there for a second because it is time for a corny, tenuous segue. The media landscape is changing, but one thing that certainly isn't changing is the outrageous quality that you will get from The Spectator Australia. We have a wonderful deal for new subscribers. If you sign up for a digital subscription today, you get your first month free, then just $2 a week for the first year. Adam is a wonderful economist. I don't even think he would be able to fully comprehend just how we make the economics of that work, but we do. Go to spectator.com.au forward slash join. I want to go now, Adam, to a, a few. Can I talk about the spectator just, just briefly? Please. So, the spectator, I actually, um, you probably don't know this, it's a bit of a secret, but I wrote the first, uh, I think, 67 editorials of the Spectator Australia in secret from the 3rd of October 2008. So, Andrew Neal, the chairman of the spectator, so I met him when I was at Oxford, and he took a liking to me, thought I was interesting and a good writer. And it got me to write some things for him. This, this is in London. And when I came back, when I finished Oxford and came back to the Reserve Bank in 2008, I was missing, yeah, missing journalism, missing England. Anyway, Andrew got in touch with me and said, will you be the first editor of The Spectator Australia? I had to say no because I would have lost my job at the Reserve Bank, obviously. I couldn't afford to do that as a, as a 27-year-old or whatever. But I said, well, how about I just write the editorials in secret and you pay me? Now, this is quite bad. It's quite naughty, really, because I didn't tell them. <laughs> I didn't tell the Reserve Bank, and if they had found out, I probably would have gotten in big trouble. But, but anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they don't care now. It was a long time ago. But I did it for uh, 67 weeks in a row in secret, and the only people who knew were John Howard because he really liked The Spectator and he wanted to know who wrote them. And who else? No, I think it was just John Howard, me, Andrew Neal. And then when I started working for Tony Abbott, though, in 2000, at the end of 2009, when he became opposition leader, I had to tell Tony, and he said, "You've got to stop doing that while you're a staffer." So, so then I had, so then I stopped it. 
But I must say it was, it was a nice little income earner for, for 67 weeks on the side. And it was a lot of fun because every week I'd write 900 words on whatever in Australian politics and just no one knew it was me. I did do a quick Google search before this interview because I, I wouldn't have been surprised if you had done some writing for The Spectator and it didn't come up. Oh, but, the, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but that would explain why it was all done in secret. Let's go to let's go to what would be a few of the key economic battlegrounds of the moment. First, I would say is cost of living, which is top of mind for most Australian families. How much power do governments really have to influence cost of living? Well, you know, they they do ultimately control money creation, which is a very big lever, and you know they control that through the central bank, and they control that through the the various capital ratios that they set for private banks. You know, which can put a cap on on the amount of money that banks can. Concrete. So they so they can they can affect these ratios, but they tend not to because they either don't understand how the economy works, which I think in some cases is true, or they just don't want to rock the boat. Like I say, I mean, banking interests interests are very powerful, and I thought you you see through the global financial crisis and the what I would say the non reforms that followed. I mean, basically nothing changed after global financial crisis. Arguably, big banks got even more powerful than they were before. There's because a lot of the small ones. Uh, collapsed or folded into big ones, and so uh, there were really no fundamental changes to finance and banking. And 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 the reason I'm dwelling on those things is because, like I said, you know, when when people go to the bank for a loan, the bank doesn't lend them money. I mean, it just, it just creates it, right? I mean, that's that's people don't understand that the bank just says, okay, you want a loan? Here is a deposit account with the money in it. So they just create it, and then on and then for the bank's balance sheet, they they create an asset which is which is a loan. So they just literally ratchet up both sides of their balance sheet. Just like that, it's an awesome power, right? But mm. there's no lending going on. <laughs> it's just they just they just make it. So what's happened is that that process of the last thirty years, the banks have leveraged themselves up massively. There's a huge amount of credit created. You know, prices have been going up at, at a rapid clip, and, and and you know the the formal inflation rate has been low up until now. You know, two percent, sometimes even lower in Australia and the US. But of course, asset price inflation has just been enormous. And so, the, you know, whether it's houses or the stock market or, or or art or whatever, this huge amount of extra credit that's been pumped into the economy has increased prices. Just not consumer prices; it's increased asset prices. But in many ways, that's that's impoverished people just as much because you know people who don't have big inheritances on the way, or you know whose parents is, you know whose parents aren't willing to help them, or whatever. It's very difficult to get into the property market to buy a home to save. So, yeah, cost of living. I mean, it's 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 going to be more of an issue. I, I mean, inflation in Australia, what is it now? Five and a half percent. It's been that for like a year or so. It seems like it'll trend down. It's trending down in the US. It's, I think, 4% now in, in the US. But that's, that's of course, still double the target. And it's been over 5% for about two years now in the US. So that's, that's a lot of inflation. The interesting question for me is, will wages catch up? They haven't been so far, as you know. I mean, wage growth is lower than inflation for the last two years, and so people are getting poorer. Just just looking at the at the public statistics. So the interesting thing is, are they permanently poorer, right? And that's a really that's a really difficult question. Uh, I mm. mean, are wages going to catch up or not? I mean, I think it will take a long time. I mean, I just look at my case. I mean, I haven't, you know, and I'm not crying poor by any sense, but I mean, I haven't had a nominal pay increase for, for three years, and yet. The consumer pricing index has gone up, um, what, you know, 17% or something during that period of mm. time. So, I mean, mm. it's, and 
most people would have experienced that sort of situation. Very few people would have had a pay increase, but they've seen prices go through the roof. I mean, of course, that's not the case if you're a government worker where you don't have to worry about inflation so much because you know it's going to be indexed. Practical effects means for, for the average person that you are effectively getting a pay cut. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Significant pay cut. And so people have to be a lot more careful with their money and they, they focus a lot more on costs than, than they were a few years ago. So, yeah, look, I think there's real, you know, there's going to be a lot of anger about the situation. You know, it could get really ugly politically because ultimately, I mean, you asked about you know, what can governments do? I mean, well, governments like Australia, very little really. I mean, you're pretty much subject to the economic forces of the world. And you, as a government, you can't you can't control those, you know, whether there's inventions elsewhere, whether there's developments or not, what's happening outside your country. I mean, the best governments can do is, is, is try to have sensible regulation, you know, relatively low taxes and efficient, you know, be efficient and then just hope everything else takes care of itself. You know, government meddling is often doesn't, doesn't end well, you know, when they try to lift minimum wages and, and kind of artificially improve people's standard of living. So... Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm, the next few years are going to be very interesting. You know, A, does inflation get back to two? We don't know yet. It could just settle at four, which is really problematic. And the second one, and relatedly, do wages catch up or not? Or are people permanently poorer? So I think that's, that's interesting. And if they're permanently poorer, who caused that? And, of course, I would say governments caused that through their insane response to COVID. Like just the most insane thing in, in, in world history, I would say, is that that just madness over a, what is a mild cold for 99% of people and just people just lost their mind, absolutely lost their minds and may have permanently made us all poorer. <laughs> and the people who they supposedly saved have probably passed on now anyway because they were 85 and, you know, they've since passed on. I mean, it's just so insane. I, I, I struggle to comprehend it even happened, but it did. Help, help me understand that because most people think of economics as being cyclical, bad times, then good times, then bad times, then good times. What you're saying there is that potentially – after this kind of bad time when we think about, say, inflation and stagnant wage growth, there may actually not be a good time on the horizon. Can you, can you explain that for me a bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, for the vast bulk of human history, there was absolutely no economic growth at all. I mean, it was just complete stagnation. It's really only since the late 19th century that much happened in the way of economic growth. And, of course, after the Second World War, it accelerated massively in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and, you know, continued into the 80s with, a, you know, a bit of bumps with inflation and so forth. So, so you know, people have grown up just thinking that we always get richer. But most of history, that was not the case at all. You know, it's conceivable that we may go back to a period of stagnation. There are lots of economists, I mean, Robert Gordon being the most prominent one, you know, who makes very powerful case that there's actually not much innovation going on at all and hasn't been for ages. The only the only innovation has, has gone on in the in the digital space. You know, and of course, you know, I shouldn't say only that's a big deal, our phones, new apps and all that stuff, communication, you know, the fact that we're doing this podcast like we are. I mean, that's all kind of innovation that's happened in the last 20 years or so. But but his point is outside of that industry, outside of communications, if you like, there's not much happened at all. I mean, the planes, I read a great stat yesterday, it's slower to fly between New York and London now than it was in the 70s. It's an hour slower. I don't know why that is the case, probably some safety regulation. But the broader point is the big things in life, the air conditioning, power we use, the length of flights, the speed of trains is more or less not changed in decades. So... Well, put it this way, I think, I, think, I think our grandparents would be shocked how similar maybe things are still. The kitchen of the 1950s is not all that different from our kitchen. I mean, really. Okay, the microwave's new, but that's it. So, so it's not like there's massive differences. So, so sorry, to get back to, the, to where we started, but I, I think that, well, I think it's already happened. I think progress has, has slowed down. 
we are getting poorer for three years now, which is quite a long time. For three years, we've had high inflation, more or less, and and people's wages are shrinking. I mean, you know, in real terms, so they are poorer. So yeah, I think this is a this is a bad period that we're going through. I think the nineties were maybe like the perfect period. You know, it was like mm. the you know, the halcyon era. You know, right up until two thousand and eight, I should say, we had this like twenty years roughly of incredible economic growth and, and peace. And then, you know, pretty much since the financial crisis, it's you know, it's been a weird period since then. You had the, had the GFC, yeah, then COVID ten years later, more or less. I mean, I'm not that optimistic to be honest. If you have to look at the the trajectory, I, I think, and this is taking a big step back from economics, but I think you're seeing the West become more like China in its in its political system. And you know, I'm not saying it's like China. I said more like China. You're seeing that all the time with government wanting to censor people, working hand in hand with big tech. You know, free speech is very old fashioned and not 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 so important anymore. Uh, you know, big security state, and I think this is. I think the reason that this is is because to compete with China, you have to be more like it because it, it as a totalitarian system, it can do things much more quickly than we can. It's you're much more efficient in some ways. And I think the elites in the West see that and they realise that, you know, we need to be more like that if we're going to compete. Let me stress, this is a very sad development to me, but but you just saw during COVID this extraordinary change in our in our behaviour, like the extraordinary totalitarian tendencies of the bureaucracy and the elites, which were, well, I mean, the whole response was a Chinese response. We just copied it. So that was that was really extraordinary and, and, and to me very worrying. And that in itself is going to slow down our economic growth, right? Because if there's less freedom, there'll be less innovation. And so, so I think that's going to be another weight on the future, as well as those other demographic issues that we talked about. There were so many interesting strands in that that uh, that answer. I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to think where to go next, and wh- where I will go is one of the reasons why we potentially haven't seen as much growth outside of the digital realm is because productivity hasn't uh, increased in the way that we would would hope. Now, productivity has been lagging in Australia. It's been lagging in a lot of Western countries for a long time. It's an easy concept to understand on an individual level. Yes. How can I how can I get more done yeah. in the next hour? It's more tricky to understand on a national level. Extremely. Yeah. How, how do you explain productivity in a, a macro sense? And then why haven't we been able to really improve it over the last couple of decades? Yeah, look, it's it's I mean, I'm very wary of productivity statistics because they really are I mean, as you suggest, it's a concept that we all understand. You know, I guess the amount of output from a given amount of input and time, inputs and time, but on a national level, measuring it is almost impossible. And that's just in one country, let alone comparing countries. I mean, they try to do it consistently, but it's hard. I mean, certainly there has been a stagnation in productivity growth. I think it's been used back home recently, hasn't? I think Phil Lowe said something about it that's really bad. But it's been stagnant for quite a while. I mean, in my columns when I used to be economics editor and um, the Australian, I, I always just used to say, look. The best the government can do is just is be as efficient and sensible itself in its rules and its taxation system. I mean, simplicity is something I think that's that's like overlooked too much. I mean, you know, governments can save people a lot of time by just making things simple, and then those people can use the freed up time to do productive things. So whether it's tax system and you know that's that's an area that that, that could be a lot simpler. But, you know, something that I always advocated for the tax system, and this is just why productivity is, is you know, difficult to measure, is because it, it kind of treats all costs equally and all production equally. But, you know, a lot of production, a lot of output is, is a negative, I would say. I mean, if you've got a really complicated tax system and you're spending a fortune on accountants as a country, I mean, that's stupid, I mean, I would say. That's, and yet that's, 
the same quality expenditure as spending on a wedding or spending on food. Or I, I mean, I mean, to me, you can't just treat all those things the same. In the US, I'm just looking at ad now on Fox about about drugs, right? I mean, prescription drugs, obviously. You know, this is the only country in the world where where pharmaceutical companies can advertise on TV, right? It can't in Australia. So the US spends a massive amount on prescription drugs, like just colossal, probably double what we do in Australia, maybe more than double. Is that more productive? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, is that is that is that sensible output? Should it be treated the same as spending on fresh food? I I don't know. And this is why you know these 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 aggregate statistics, these macro statistics. I'm you know I'm kind of not so interested in them really. They can be misleading. So you know, sure they're 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 interesting to look at, but. You know, I hope I've just hinted at a lot of the problems. And that goes to GDP because, you know, GDP is, is one of the major inputs in productivity statistics, right? It's like GDP per hour, you know, per hour worked. You know, that's one measure of productivity. You know, how many hours are people working? Well, I mean, who even knows how to measure that? I mean, how many hours do I work a week? I don't know. I'm, like in my contract, I'm meant to work 38 hours. If you count it all the time, I'm thinking about work, I'm sure it would be 80 hours or 100 hours. I, I don't know. Am I working 80 hours a week or am I working 38? That makes a huge difference for the productivity statistics. <laughs> and I don't think my job's that unusual in terms of the boundary between, you know, work and home life is has, has frayed massively because of technology and so forth. And so that the very key input of hours worked, I mean, I just think it's a bullshit statistic. I mean, surely in the 1930s and 40s, it, it would be much more realistic because the vast bulk of the population were working in, in farming, agriculture. Well, not the vast bulk, but a much, much bigger share of working farming and manufacturing where the government could ask these big employers, look, you know, what what are the clock on and clock off times? And you could get a better sense of, of actual actual hours worked. But now I don't, you know, I just don't even see how you get that input. And that's just one input into productivity, right? Then you've got to, then there's the issues with GDP I just talked about. So that's a whole other statistic with its own issues. So, you know, my point is, I mean, <laughs> I'd take productivity statistics with a grain of salt. With your reflection around simplicity, you opened the door to, to what is my, my final question. I think we could talk for the next three hours, but uh, <laughs> but I'm I, we are we are approaching one. <laughs> Let's say Adam Crichton becomes Australia's next treasurer. Yeah, I used to want to be that. That would have been nice. I don't think it's going to happen now. <laughs> Let's say it's the case. What would he do? Well, well, I I would I would. Uh dramatically simplify the tax system. That's been my you know, passion for ages. Well, actually, no, two things I would do, <laughs> two things. And even if that's all I did as treasurer and I was removed within a year, I'd be very, very happy. The first would be with the income tax system, I'd get rid of all tax deductions, gone, all of them. And all of the money I would use to lower income tax rates. And those income tax rates would be very, very simple, right? Because, I mean, what I want to be able to do is ordinary person or small businessman should be able to work out their tax in their head right, basically, marginal tax. And so the rates would be 0, 25, 33, and 50, right? So zero, you know, a quarter, a third, and a half, right? And and they would never be able to change from that because those are fractions people can work out in their head. Oh, the Medicare levy would go. That's complete nonsense complexity. So it would be extremely simple taxes and there'd be no reduction. So there'd be no deductions. I mean, those, those call-free uh, rates, the 50% rate, which is kind of what we have at the moment, except it's 48 or something like that, that would cut in at a much higher level. Three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand dollars a year, right? So, and those other rates would obviously be, be somewhere else, and the thresholds would be indexed to inflation. So, basically, every year the, uh, the income tax thresholds would increase by whatever inflation was, and so government would not get its its annual tax hike, which is completely immoral at the moment because it's not legislated, and yet it happens every year, and it's been happening a lot recently. So, yeah, so the tax system, and then the other thing I would do is I would scrap compulsory superannuation, which is an incredible disaster. 
Um, I mean, it's it's just it's it's just such a gargantuan disaster. You know, we we could do a whole other episode on super, but and that of course would deliver to ordinary people a ten percent pay rise, right? Basically, I mean, of course, I would say if you want the money, you can go to your employer and ask for it. So you know, look, I'm not going to say you know I'd probably leave the system in place, but I just say now, if you want, you can go to your boss and you can say I'd actually like to have my my twelve percent instead. And if you want, you can get it. And just that would be a massive increase in income for ordinary people because I assume most people would go and get the 12%. And that this, you know, the vast kind of bloated uh, system that we have in Australia that is super, just this like cash cow for the finance sector, it really is obscene. I mean, it really is absolutely obscene. And, and the thing is, you know, people were already saving enough for retirement. It is just utter crap that they were not. It's always been utter crap, right? I mean, the mere fact people were dying with inheritances, right? suggest people had enough money because there was still money left when they died so it's just the most stupid argument but of course it's self-serving argument the industry wants nothing more than more money for free going into it forced by government it's just so absurd so yeah scrapping super and a very simple tax system that they'd be they'd be amazing reforms i think but but i can assure you neither of them is going to happen <laughs> yes we uh we had fellow economist cameron murray on the show a couple of months ago yeah, he uh, he he made the uh, the the same argument with a similar level of passion. That agenda makes such painfully common sense that yeah. you're right. It unfortunately will will never happen, but we live in hope. Adam is one of Australia's most insightful journalists, as I'm sure everyone who's listened to this podcast will will agree. You can read his analysis on politics and economics in the Australian. Adam, thank you very much for coming on Australiana. Thanks very much, Will. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.